Many of you have been watching some of the videos I've been sending out, but in case you didn't, I wanted to share with you uh, the scripture that God gave me. I guess it was uh, Tuesday morning, maybe. I believe it was. God spoke to me. I was just praying about our church, and, and God gave me the scripture. If you will put it up on the overhead for me or on the screen, uh, Genesis chapter 26. Should be back there somewhere. Sarah, if you'll pull that up. Great, thank you. It said, then Isaac dug again the wells of water. And I'm telling you, there's a sermon I've preached before. Uh, it's been a long time ago that I've done it, but redig the wells. Redig wells like prayer and worship and studying of the word and fasting and seeking God. By the way, I commend you. Two weeks now fasting, only one more to go. Yes. And I hope God is speaking to you big time. But it says that uh, Isaac dug in the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up. The enemy had stopped them up. And up after the death of Abraham, he gave them the same names which he, his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants, go into the next verse if you will, dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water. You know God wants to give us some flowing water. And I, I mean spiritually speaking. Water's always a sign of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And uh, the flowing water is the flowing of the Spirit. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well. Before I get into that, so, so that's one well. They found flowing water and they had to pick up and leave because the enemy quarreled with them. To me, that represents us at the theater. Did you know? That the Sunday after we gathered all of our belongings out of the theater and officially moved the last piece of stuff out of the theater, within one week they were shut down. So we got out of there just in time. So they did not, uh, uh, they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna, dug another well, and they quarreled over it and they named it Sitna. And so he moved away from there. And to me, that represents the school, not anything that the school did, but. COVID forced an impossible situation on us, and we were forced yet again to move. We came out here, and Pastor Doug and the church has been so gracious to allow us to be here. But then he said, and dug another well, another place where God was going to put them, and they did not quarrel over it. The enemy did not come against them. So watch what the Lord spoke to me. So he named it Rehoboth, which means wide places, or a place... Uh, for growth and room to grow. For he said at last. Everybody say at last. I know many of you are wondering when is it going to happen. And we're all going to say one day at last. <laughs> the Lord has made room. The Lord has made room. The Lord has made. I was going to shoot another video Friday. I decided not to. And, but the Lord has made. It's not anything we're going to have to contend for. It's not anything we're going to have to manufacture. It's not anything we're going to have to try to force or make happen ourselves. The Lord made room. The Lord made room. I say the Lord. The Lord made room. Room there again means wide places or to enlarge. It's a, it's a good spot. It's a good place where they could grow, where they could grow into that area. And we will be fruitful. And that keeps standing out to me. Fruitful. We're going to see souls saved where God puts us. We're going to see people discipled. We're going to see lives changed and transformed. I still believe we're going to see blind eyes open and deaf ears hear. We're going to see the lame walk. We're going to see marriages restored. We're going to see people put back together again. Amen. I still believe the Bible. Amen. 
We will be fruitful in that land. Somebody say amen. amen. That land means territory or region. So I'm excited. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but I know this. The Lord gave me that scripture, and the next place he puts us, God is going to give us favor, and we will be fruitful. Amen. Amen. We will see souls plucked right out of hell, and their names written in the Lamb's book of life, and they'll be saved. I believe that. Anybody believe that with me? Amen. (laughs) Praise God. I am excited about that. Well... I want to just hit a few things before I get into the series and the word today, and that is um, uh, we could use your help to liven some stuff up. If, as you came in this morning, you probably saw me. There was a big smile under a mask, and I had a nice little sign that said, hey, smile, it's Sunday. I'd flip it around, and, I'd, and it would say, we're glad you're here today. And we hooped, and we hollered, and we had a lot of fun, and we brought smile to people's faces. How many of you think you could do that once a month? If you could do that, Dale, I want you to stand to your feet. Everyone look back and say, hi, Dale. Dale. If you can do as simply as what I did, if you're you're a little, you want to, even if you have a red bracelet, you can put your mask on, you can stand six feet away, and you can see Dale King right there. Everybody again, say, hi, Dale. Hi, Dale. Whoop, whoop, hi, Dale. Whoop, whoop. Anyways, you can see him, and you can sign up to do what I did today. Was it really hard? No. You should hold a sign up and say, hey, we're glad you're here today. So we need you to sign up and we need your help because we want to liven up. We have guests coming. We are preparing for more and more people that are coming and they are coming and, and we want to welcome them. So sign up. Also, we're going to do water baptism. If anybody's interested, please let me know because we do have the capability of baptizing people in water in this building and we are free to do so and will do so if you are interested. So just let me know. Also, we're going to take members in. If you're interested in joining uh, the church and becoming a member, we want you to do that as well. And also, next Sunday starts off small groups. Woo! We love small groups at this church. Boy, small groups are awesome. We have so much fun. Grab a small group magazine. Get hooked into a group. You will love it. You will build relationships. How many of you love your small group? I just love your small group. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So you want to sign up, there's, there's, we'll have them at, 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 as you leave. We'll, if you don't already have one, we'll put one in your hands. And, uh, and you can sign up. They start next week again. So praise God for that. Well, I'm going to get right into uh, the message today. And that is, um, I'm beginning this series uh, on what does the Bible say about dot, dot, dot. And then the thought occurred to me. Before we can worry about what the Bible says, we need to know if the Bible is really the Word of God. Amen? And so I want to answer the question today, the Bible, is it a book of fables or is it the Word of God? Is there really a way to know? Um, Because there's, uh, you you have the Koran out there, you have the Book of Mormon, there's a lot, you have Hare Krishna and, and Sun Moon, and you've got all these different religions that have these holy books to them. What, what makes the Bible really the Word of God? Is it? Because I've had family members that have even told me, the Bible is just old wives' tales. It's, it's just a book of fables. Is it really? Is there a way to prove that? Uh, by the end of this message, at the end, I, I'm going to prove to you, historically, mathematically, and statistically, that it absolutely has to be the Word of God. It is impossible for what has happened in the pages of these books to actually happen. So, I'm looking forward today because we're, I'm going with this series. Are you ready? I want everybody to hear me loud and clear. 
where I'm going with this series, I'm going to teach the Word, and the Word is going to go against the current of what is out there in society today. Society wants to accept everything and tolerate everything, but folks, we need to know what do the pages of this book say. Is this the Word of God? And if it is the Word of God, then we need to figure out what God is saying and not what man's opinion is. How many agrees with that? Do we still believe the Bible is the authoritative, moral absolute of this universe? I, I know I do, and I'm getting ready to prove it to those of you, maybe you're watching online. This may be the most important message that I ever preach. Because, folks, our eternity is staked on this. This is more and bigger than just our lives. This is eternity. Don't you think we should know, is this really the Word of God? And if it is the Word of God, shouldn't we be reading it? By the way, I, next week, you don't want to miss. I, I wrote this last week. I, it just came all over me while I was fasting and praying in my office, and I sat there till nightfall, and I put together a message. Is America a Christian nation? You don't want to miss next week. I'm going to blow your mind at the way this country started and what we were founded on. I'll give you one little taste test. Are you ready for this? One of Congress's first acts was to mass-produce Bibles and give it to every citizen in America. Congress. I'm going to blow your mind next week. You don't want to miss next week. But I'm going to tell you this right now. You better believe we're a Christian nation. And I'm going to prove it to you next week. Amen? But before I get into that, is the Word of God, is the Bible a book of fables? Is it a book of wives' tales? Or is it the Word of the living God? So let's answer that. And if you will, stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to go to 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'd like for you, uh, if you have version, you can check out version notes. Uh, they're on there. You can save them and look back later. But uh, Acts, or 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration there means God breathed. That means what God is saying, the Bible is saying, is that all Scripture is breathed by God. In other words, it is His Word. And it is profitable for doctrine. Things that we said, what, what is doctrine? Doctrine is a, is, a, is a firm belief, right? Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That's a doctrine. Jesus died on the cross. That's a doctrine. I'm, essential truths to our salvation. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, God, that you would just settle this question for us in our hearts. Because as I go through this long series... We're going to have to continue to go back and ask, God, is this what you're saying or is this what society is saying? What do you say about all these social matters that we have, that we're dealing with in society today? So, God, I pray you speak to us, not one word of my own, but every word straight from the throne of God into our hearts. And, Lord, we'll believe you and we'll thank you and we'll praise you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Hold your Bibles up in whatever form that you have. I got it on my phone, and I'll put it up, pull up a paper one as well. And let's boldly declare, Father, today, this week, by your grace, I'm going to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only, deceiving my own self. Now, Lord, anoint my ears, anoint my heart, anoint my spirit, my soul, my mind, and my body to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen, amen. High five somebody if they got a green bracelet. Tell them it's good to see them. If they got red air, high five them. Tell them it's good to see them. 
How do we know that the Bible is in fact the Word of God? Well, there's four um, proofs of the reliability of the Bible. And one proof, the first one that I want to talk about is external evidence. Everybody say external evidence. So point number one is external evidence. External evidence simply means that there are proofs that of the reliability of the Bible that are outside of the pages of the Bible itself. Uh, the number of manuscript copies and the short length of time between the original manuscripts and our first copies of the New Testament is proof. So Norman Giesler said it this way. For the New Testament, the evidence is overwhelming. There are 5,366 manuscripts to compare and draw information from. Everybody says that's a lot. <laughs> and some of these date from the 2nd and or 3rd centuries. To put that in perspective, there are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, and that is the most famous book of ancient Greece. No one doubts the existence of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, but we only have 10 copies of it, and the earliest of those was made a 1,000 years after it was written. To have such an abundance of copies of the New Testament from dates within 70 years after their writing is amazing. So let me just take you on a little bit of history here because I want to paint a picture, and I'm going to pull some things that are, that are going to externally prove what I'm trying to talk about here, why the Bible is the Word of God. Bibles are translated from original copies, which would have been Hebrew, Aramaic, some of the Bibles written in Aramaic, which, believe it or not, most theologians think that was actually the language Jesus spoke in his time, not Hebrew. But Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, right? Most of the Old Testament is Hebrew, most of the Greek is New, um, uh, most of the New Testament is Greek. You have some of the, most of the book of Daniel and a few other places are in Aramaic. Most people believe the idea that the Bible's been passed down from, from language to language over the centuries and as a result must have changed many times. It's kind of the old thing if I tell uh, Tom right here in the front row something and he tells Ashley next to him and they tell Skylar and it goes to Sandy and it goes all through by the last person. It's nothing close to what I said, right? Because we misinterpret as we're saying stories. So there's a lot of people that will say, well you got all these languages that it's translated into, and man, we've got this thing bum-fuzzled somewhere along the way. It's all gotten messed up, but it's simply not true. Why? When a Bible translation is done, the translator goes back to the earlier, earliest manuscripts in their original languages to make those copies. So the earliest Jewish scribes on the Old Testament, the earliest copyists, I'm talking about in the Pentateuch era, with Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, when they would copy a scroll, they had very, very uh, a strict codes to ensure the accuracy of these copies. Let me just give you some. This is not an exhaustive list. One each scroll had to contain a specified number of columns, all equal throughout the entire book. The length of each column must not be less than 48 lines or more than 60 lines. Each column's breadth must be exactly 30 letters. The copyist must use a specially prepared black ink. The copyist must not copy from memory. The space between every consonant must be the size of a thread. That's why if you look at a Jewish scroll, scroll now today, it's perfect in how it's all lined up. 
The space between, uh, I said that one, number seven, the copyist must use a fresh quill to pen the sacred name of God. So they wouldn't even, when they wrote God's name in there, they wouldn't even use the one they were. They'd get a fresh one. And they, they treated the name of God so, so sacredly that if a king walked in, they wouldn't even recognize the king's presence uh, while they were writing the name of God. They could only copy letter by letter, never word by word. Verse number 9 and 10 are so important for us to understand to be able to count on the accuracy of the Bible. They counted the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book. And if it came out wrong, they threw the whole scroll away. Watch this. They knew the middle letter of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And the middle letter of the entire Old Testament, after copying a scroll, they continued forward and backward from this middle letter. And if the number of letters did not match what they knew to be correct, they destroyed the scroll and they started over. Folks, they did not mess up in copying these scrolls. There's an even more longer list that I could go on, but you get the point. They were very, very accurate or they would throw it away. There were confirmations of places and dates that in the Bible that are confirmed archaeologically. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls found in Qumran have been there many times in Israel, where they found uh, portions of the book of Isaiah. Prior to that, the earliest manuscript from Isaiah in some of the Old Testament was 900 be years before Christ, 900 B.C., when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were nearly a thousand years newer. They were, came around about the time of Christ, and they matched up, and they found that the book of Isaiah was the same. In other words, a thousand years had passed, and there were no mistakes. Somebody say, that's pretty good. That is a huge, huge find that they found archaeologically, and you can actually see those. Sometimes they actually tour them through the United States. For years, critics insisted that the story of Abram's rescue of Lot in Genesis 14 was historically inaccurate. They, they argued, they fought against it. They said, why? They said the names of the kings listed in Genesis 14 were fictitious. They said since they were not confirmed in secular histories, they also said that the idea that the king of Babylon would serve the king of Elam was historically inaccurate and never happened. However, archaeologically... The names of some of these kings have now been identified. And there is now evidence that the king of Babylon, in fact, did serve the king of Elam at this time. So archaeological finds are proving even things as far back as Genesis chapter 14. Someone say amen. For decades, it was said that the Old Testament writers just invented a tribe of people called the Hittites. How many of you have heard the Bible called the Hittites? As a matter of fact, if you read today's Bible reading, you'll find that Esau married a Hittite. They said, well, they just dreamed this up. There's no evidence externally outside of the Bible that the Hittite tribe even began, even was created. For hundreds and over a thousand years, people fought it. No, no, there's no such thing as the Hittites. Show me archaeologically. It's just not there. And then in 1911, 1912... Professor Hugo Winchler of Berlin, Germany, discovered 10,000 clay tablets at the former Hittite cap, uh, capital. So now, not only is the existence of the Hittite tribe extensively proven archaeologically, it throws their argument way out. I could go on and on about Solomon and his thousands of horses. 
that they say didn't exist but in Megiddo. Those of you that were in Israel with me last time, you saw the horse stalls where one of the five uh, horse cities where they kept the, st- the horses. You saw with your own eyes where the stalls were. We sat right there and talked about it. My point is archaeology confirms the places and the people the Bible speaks about. For those of you that wonder about Pontius Pilate, you, you remember those of you that were with me in Israel. We stood at Caesarea by the sea and saw the stone marker that clearly said his name on it. Time and time again, archaeological finds prove the Bible is true. Archaeologists have even uncovered many of the places of the New Testament. Here's a few examples, just a few. A portion of Herod's temple has been discovered. Those of you that are with me, you've walked it. The Areopagus, in which Paul spoke about in Athens, you can go to Athens and see it. And, and Acts 19, that talks about a theater in Ephesus. You can go and stand and sit in that theater to this day. For those of you that were with me and Israel on the last trip, the Pool of Siloam, they said, oh, there's no Pool of Siloam for years. Well, guess what? John chapter 9, we sat right there at the Pool of Siloam. We found it, or the archaeologists found it recently in the last 20 years. And we sat right there, and it's true. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts is a model of historical accuracy. Watch this. In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. Folks, this is very important to our faith. Amen? William Albright said it this way, Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Now what's happening is some archaeologists, watch this, they look in the Bible and they say, I bet we can find some old archaeological finds where the Bible says. So now they're using the Bible to go find the stuff. <laughs> it's pretty cool. The second thing that you have as evidence is the internal evidence. Everybody say internal evidence. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You're going to use the Bible to prove the Bible is the Word of God? Yes, I'm going to show you what I mean in just a second. The majority of the Bible is written from eyewitness accounts. Why is that important? One piece of evidence that historians look for in assessing the reliability of any document, Bible or any historical document, is the amount of time... From the number of generations that passed from one story on passed on a story before the story was written down. In other words, was it first-hand information? Was it second-hand? Was it well, Granny told me that her grandfather told her in the Civil War this happened, and now it's five generations later? Or were they people that saw this with their own eyes? In other words, did this did the people that wrote the Bible experience it themselves? Well, the events of the Bible were primarily recorded in the generation in which they experienced by those who experienced them. What does that mean? The Bible's filled with eyewitness accounts. Moses was standing there when the Red Sea split. He wrote the Pentateuch. Joshua was standing there when the walls of Jericho fell down. He wrote the book of Joshua. The disciples were sitting there in the upper room when Jesus walked through the wall, showed them the nail-scarred hands, and showed them his resurrected body. They saw with their own eyes. How many know that's an eyewitness account? There's an amazing agreement and consistency throughout the Bible. Look what Josh McDowell says. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life. Kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. 
It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. Yet it speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end, God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No person could have possibly conceived of or written such a work. In other words, these people didn't even know each other. Some of them were on different continents and different generations, thousands of years apart. Yet they wrote documents together that they didn't have internet to share and compare. And it's perfect. Somebody say amen. How do we know that God's word is the word of God versus the Qumran, the, the, the Quran or, or some of the other holy books that are out there? Well, just take a look at this. The Bible is translated from 24,000 copies of the New Testament alone with millions of people having seen some of these copies. And those copies have been translated by thousands of scholars. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I got to do this to get us where we need to be. How many would say that's a lot of copies and that's a lot of eyeballs? Watch this. This is going to blow you away. The Book of Mormon is translated from a supposed single original that is claimed to have been seen and translated by one man, Joseph Smith, who, by the way, was not an expert in languages. And the original was taken back and there are no copies of that original and there's nobody around today that has ever seen it. Now, I'm not a smart guy, but I think I'm going to side with 24,000 copies and millions of eyeballs over one man, what he supposedly saw. Is that logic thinking? Let's go on. The Bible was written by more than 40 different authors spanning over 50 generations. 50 generations. And three continents. It speaks with agreement on all matters of faith and doctrine. You ready for this? The, the Quran. The book of Muslim is the writings and record of one man, Muhammad, in one place at one point in history. It speaks with many points, differs at many points with the Old and New Testament accounts of history. The Bible provides God's distinctive solution to man's problem with sin and focuses on God's work in actual verifiable history. You can see it. Hindu scriptures claim that all roads lead to the same place and focus on stories and things that happen in the celestial realms. Look, I'm not the brightest guy in the book, but it seems to me I'd rather go with thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses and copies and archaeological proof over some guy that may have been smoking weed and dreamed up something and put it in a book. You say, Pastor, you shouldn't talk like that. Yes, I should. There is only one true God. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one true word of God, and it is the Bible. I'm not here to diss other religions. I'm telling you that's not the word of God. There is only one word of God, and it is the Bible. Somebody say amen. You say, Pastor, you might offend somebody. Listen, I'm high tired of offend, defend, defend, defend. At what point are we going to stand up and say, I'm not here trying to offend anybody, but this is the word of God. This is the only true way you're going to get to heaven. Your eternity is at stake, and I don't want you believing a lie. Somebody say amen. Like, I care about my sheep. I care about the people God put me over. I care about the people God called me to pray over and pastor over. I want us to know what is real and what is truth. There's also personal evidence. The Bible is the world's best-selling book. Did you know it was the first book really mass-printed on a press, the Gutenberg Bible? 
In fact, the Bible in whole or in part has been translated into more than 1,300 languages. Check this out. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, as of 1995, 25 years ago, the Bible is a best-selling book of all time with an estimated 5 billion copies sold and distributed. The next highest sold book ever created, Don Quixote, 500 million. There's no even, it's not even in the same stratosphere. There are people out there that say, well, I believe what Jesus said, but not all the Bible. Well, okay. Point number four is this. Jesus said the Bible came from God. Jesus recognized the Spirit as the author. Everybody say God is the author. Matthew 22, 43 through 44 says this. He said to them, Jesus speaking, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Here Jesus is quoting from David in the Psalms, and he recognizes the Holy Spirit inspired David's words. He's verifying the Bible. Jesus quoted the Bible as authoritative. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29, watch this. Jesus replied, oh, I love this. You are an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. He told the Sadducees, because you don't know the scriptures, you are number one in error, and number two, you don't have the power of God. You know what? That could be said about American generation today. Let me just take it back a step further. That could be said about a lot of church-going people today. They come in on Sunday, they sing the songs, they hear the sermon, but they never pick up the good book and read it for themselves. And as a result, they get themselves and their lives in error, and they don't know the power of God. They don't know that the Bible says that you don't have to uh, tolerate sickness. You can be healed by His stripes. They don't realize, I can't be free from this addiction or problem, that God says, I have liberty through Jesus Christ. They don't realize there's power in this book, and if we'll read it and get it in our spirit, we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We'll see the evidence in our own life. Somebody say, man, did it get you on these books? Amen. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus speaking, he replied, blessed are those rather that hear the word of God and obey it. Clearly here, he's not just saying it's part of history or poetry. He said, we've got to obey the word of God. Jesus called it the word of God. Watch this, Mark 7, 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. Now listen, even though Jesus did not, wasn't holding in his hand the original word scroll that Moses wrote or David wrote or others, he nevertheless considered the manuscript copies of his day to be the word of God. Jesus believed, check this out, that the people and places in the Bible are real places and real people. Everybody say real. Watch this. He believed in the prophets. Matthew 22 through 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Every scripture I'm going to give you is Jesus. They're written in red in the Bible and you can see them for yourself. He believed in Noah. Luke 17, 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will be in the days of the Son of Man. He believed in Adam and Eve, Matthew 19, 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, Adam and Eve? He believed in Sodom and Gomorrah, Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. 
He believed in Jonah, Matthew 12, 40. And he believed, by the way, Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. Because look what he said. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish or a whale, however you want to say it, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights into the heart of the earth. I find it interesting that the people that, that the stories of the Old Testament that are the most viciously attacked as old fables or just good old stories like Noah, Jonah, Adam and Eve, and Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus verified and was convinced they were real or he wouldn't have said so in the Bible. Are you seeing this? You'll hear people say, it's him. Possible for Jonah to be swallowed by a good fish. That's just a good story. Jesus didn't believe that. Hello? I'm going somewhere at the end of this. God's going to do something here at the end of this. You watch. God gave us the Bible to change our lives. What? What? What changes has God's made, word made in your life? What changes would you like to see God's word make in your life? Has the Bible shown you who God really is? Are you in a different place in your life where you need to see God in a different way and you need God to reveal himself to you through the Bible like never before? Because he will. Some say, okay, well, I hear all that, Pastor, and that's all great, but, you know, the books of the Bible were chosen by men. There's a way big misnomer out there that says they were chosen by a bunch of, you know, 25 people in one single meeting. Who gave them the right and the authority to choose what books went in this Bible? And I can't believe God would do that because, well, that's not how it worked. So how do, how do we know that the right books are in the Bible? Well, you have the testimony of the Bible itself, firstly. Jesus recognized the Old Testament canon. The word canon refers to the list of books in the Bible. That are, why are these books, the ones that are here, why are they here? Did you know Jesus verified the Old Testament ones? Watch this, Luke 24, 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Watch this, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament. He basically looked at him and he said, I am verifying that the books of the Old Testament are in fact God's word. Jesus just did that right there. Simon Peter, this, this is so cool, recognized part of the New Testament canon. In 2 Peter 3.16, watch what he says. Speaking these things in all of his letters, he's writing about Paul's letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. Peter, if they were hard for you to understand, God only help us, Right? And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. Everybody say other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. Other parts of Scripture here were letters by Paul that were written to the Thessalonians or the Corinthians or, or the Colossians. Did you know that Simon Peter is recognizing Paul's letter as Scripture or as the Holy Word of God even when he's writing his letter? Listen, people didn't get together and vote in, well, we like this book, we don't like that one, that one's out, this one's in. I'm going to explain how it worked in a minute, but Scripture was being verified even at the time of Christ and just after. In fact, Paul recognized the equal inspiration of the Old and New Testament in one single verse. 
Leave this up. When he's writing to Timothy in 5.18, he says, For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. That's Old Testament. Then he says, and the worker deserves his wages. That's Luke 10.7. And he calls them both the Word of God or Scripture. Old and New Testament in one verse. So check this out. Students of the Bible believe that Luke's gospel was written somewhere late 50s to 60 A.D., while he wrote this letter to Timothy in 63 A.D. That means Luke's gospel was considered scripture or the word of God three to five years after it was written. What what do I mean by all this? You also have the history of the church. When you look at how the books actually came to be included in the Bible, you see they were not the result of one vote taken and one single meeting by a few men. That's not how it worked. They were included in the New Testament on three things. Number one, the authority of an apostle. The New Testament stands on the foundations of the apostles, men who intimately knew Jesus. I find it cool that God chose the men who walked with Jesus basically to tell his story. So you had Matthew, who was a tax collector and a disciple. You had John, who was a disciple. You had, you had Luke, who uh, wrote down and was a friend of Paul, uh, talked about things that Paul wrote. Mark wrote down P- Peter's remembrances. You also have the teaching of the truth. The first people to ever read these books, watch this, were disciples who gave their lives for Christ. Check this out. They never died for Old Testament scriptures. They died for New Testament writings. As a matter of fact, I've said this before, but it bears repeating because there's new people in the room and maybe new watching online. And that is this. Lee Strobel, the great atheist lawyer, set out to disprove the Bible by using his attorney expertise in cross-examination. When he got done, he became a Christian and they asked him why. He said, you know, I could reason away everything. But he said, my extensive experience as an attorney says this, 500 people were willing to be martyred and killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, in my experience as an attorney, no one is willing to die for a lie. It has to be true. And gave his life, and he wrote a book called The Case for Christ of It. You also had the confirmation of the church. Some people think that the New Testament books, again, were chosen by a council of a few people, and that wasn't true. Here's what that council did. It's the Nicene Council in 400 A.D. Here's what they did. They got together. They recognized what everyone else had already recognized, that this, is in fact, was the Bible. And here's why they did it. They, the people had been declaring these books for over 300 years that this was the Word of God. They got together and said, yep, we recognize this is definitely the Word of God. That's all they did. And they did it because false prophets were trying to introduce more books of false lies into the Bible. And they said, no, that's not the Bible. Here's what the Bible is. And this is what the Bible's been for hundreds and thousands of years. That's all they did. You have our faith. Isaiah 40 and 8 says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Why is that important? Because when you stake your eternity on this, a million years from now, God is not going to look at you and say, well, joke's on you. That was only good for a hundred years. When you stake your life that you are saved and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you live for Jesus and you hear, enter in. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you enter into those pearly gates. He will not come to you in 10 million years and say, well, your time's up, you're out. 
Somebody else got to take your house. It stands forever. Somebody say forever. How many of you think that a holy God that sent his son Jesus to die on the cross would somehow allow a book in here that is not his word to either enter here or what was his word to be excluded? Heavens, no. As a matter of fact, let me close with this. And if you've been in small group, you've heard this, but I like it so much. It is going to prove to you mathematically and statistically it's impossible what Jesus did. And I'm going to tell you why that's important. Because God's about to move in some people's lives right now. There are 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now that sounds great. He fulfilled 300 prophecies. What, what's the big deal about that? Well, Dr. Peter Stoner, in the 20th century, a scientist. Everybody say a scientist. Not a theologian, not a pastor, a scientist, watch this, who was an expert in probability. What is probability? If you put ten balls in a bucket, nine are white, one's red, the probability of you being blindfolded, reaching in, pulling out the red balls, one in ten. Pretty simple, right? Well, he gathered and employed 600 of his science students in 12 different classes, and he said, let's see what the probability is of... Any one human being fulfilling eight of 300 prophecies, not even 300, let's start with eight of them. And let's see what the probability is of any human being in the course of a couple thousand years to fulfill just eight of them. Well, they did massive research and, and, and what they came to was amazing because a third party, which happened to be the National Scientific American Council, reviewed their work and said, not only is it accurate, but it's actually conservative. So what I'm going to tell you, these three parts is actually conservative. Are you ready? Poke your neighbor and say, get ready. So Dr. Stoner and his students got to work, and here's the eight prophecies they picked out. Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Christ to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Christ to be betrayed by a friend, which, by the way, all the four, first four are in totally different generations. Christ to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The money for which Christ is sold to be thrown to the potter. In God's house, Christ to be silent before his accusers, and Christ to be executed by crucifixion as a thief. So, they, did, they took these eight, they get, did massive amounts of research, they came up, they said, what is the probability that any one human being, Jesus or anybody else, could fulfill these eight things? And they found that it was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 with 17 zeros behind it. So, Dr. Stoner, in order to illustrate the power of this, said, if you take... One and 17 zeros behind it, amount of silver dollars. You would have to fill up a place the size of the state of Texas, two feet deep. That's how many silver dollars one and, 17, one and 10 to the 17th power is. He said, you mark one of those silver dollars with a red X, throw it anywhere in the state of Texas, blindfold Tracy, put him in a helicopter, fly him over Texas. At any point, Tracy can say, hey, stop right here, reach down, dig down two feet deep, go over two miles, go over 100 miles, whatever, the size of Texas. Pick one out. The probability of Tracy picking out the one with the red X is the probability of any one human being fulfilling just eight of 300 prophecies. Now, that's mind-blowing until you find that once they discovered that, they went back and they said, well, what's the probability of 16 out of 30? Let's double it. They did their research. They went 
And they found that the pro- probability was 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Everybody say 45 zeros. That's like the national debt, right? So that many silver dollars actually couldn't be stored on earth. And we're just talking 16 out of 300. As a matter of fact, you'd have to make a ball, and the sphere would be so large, the diameter would be 60 times the distance from the sun to the earth. 5.5 million miles in diameter, to be exact. Now, you fly, Dale, on an airplane, and which, by the way, to fly around that sphere would take 400 years at the speed of an airplane. You tell him to get out at any time he's blindfolded, And by the way, he might have to dig down 2.75 billion miles down into that ball because it could be at the very center. Pick the one silver dollar out with the red X, which is larger than the earth. That's the probability of Dale or any other human being, Jesus in this case, fulfilling 16 of 300 prophecies. Everybody say, wow. Wow. Let me blow your mind one more time. Some of you probably heard this, but I'm going to go with it. Dr. Stoner said, okay, what about 48? How about we deal with 48 out of 300 prophecies? They did their research and they found the number to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, you can't even use a silver dollar to illustrate this. You have to go to something like an electron. And as Jean Bevere so wonderfully said, if you take a one-inch line of electrons and you counted 250 per minute, it would take you 19 million years to count all those electrons. One inch. Well, in this illustration of 1 in 10 to the 157th power, you would have so many electrons that you'd have to make a big ball. Watch this. The radius of that sphere would be as far as man has ever seen into space with a Hubble telescope, 13 billion light years. Mark one of those. Put Pastor Dale on the space shuttle. Let him pick anywhere he wants in the entire universe. Get out of that space shuttle. Pick one out. The probability of him picking the one red X electron out of all the universe we've ever even seen in space is the probability of any one person fulfilling 48 of 300 prophecies. There is no way to even measure 300 prophecies. It is mathematically and statistically impossible for Jesus to have fulfilled 300 Old Testament prophecies if he wasn't the Son of God. But he did. But he did. Are you ready for God to do something? I feel this in my spirit so strong. There's no question that this book is the word of God and Jesus was the son of God. It's impossible any other way. No man could ever. No, not even close. So I have a question for you. What are you going to do with that now? Tanya, you know that is the word of God. And you know Jesus fulfilled it. For Jesus to be able to do that, what is the diagnosis the doctor gave you? What can that possibly be in the sight of a holy, awesome God like Jesus that fulfilled 300 Old Testament prophecies? Folks, what are we going to do with this now? This is the Word of God, so what are you going to do with it? 
What are you going to do with 1 Peter 2.24 that says, By His stripes you were healed? What are you going to do with Matthew 4.23-24 that says, Jesus healed all who were sick in the towns and villages? What are we going to do with Acts 3.16 that says, It's at the great name of Jesus He was healed and made whole. What are we going to do when we have a family member that's not saved and we want to throw in the towel and short side what I just told you? What are we going to do with Acts 16 that says me and my whole household are saved? What are we going to do when an addiction says you, you can't break me? You're always going to be, I'm always going to be there. You can't get free. What are we going to do with who the Son sets free is free indeed? What are we going to do with where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty? Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? If you're hopelessly lost in sin watching me online or in, even in here, and you say, I can't get free of sin, what are you going to do with the power of Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary sets you free? My point is this. What are we going to do with this? Is this the Word of God or is it a book of fables? Is this the Word of God? Let me ask you something. Will God back His Word? Will signs and wonders follow His Word, confirming it? Will the Spirit of God move based on the Word of God? Somebody say amen. Here's what I want you to do. I don't know what your need is today. Man, I feel faith rising. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you after hearing this said, man, this is God's Word and I believe it. Me, I believe it. Yes, I believe it. This is truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Whatever your need is from God, I want you to stand right now. And I want you to raise your hands toward heaven. And I want you just to begin to pray and ask Him. Tell Him, God, this is your word. Oh, if you're watching right now, wherever you are at home. If you're at home or in the car, wherever you're watching this at. Right where you're at, just say, oh, I believe it. I believe you want me and my household saved. I believe I can be free of this addiction. I believe I can be healed no matter what the doctors say. I believe I'm healed. I believe I'm delivered. I believe this is the Word of God. Jesus said He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. Come on, I want you to begin to pray. And as they begin to sing, He's the way maker. I want you to worship God like you've already got your miracle. I want you to worship God like you know the Word of God is true. Like you know Jesus is the Son of God. That He did die on a cross for you. That He did shed His blood to wash your sin away. That He did take 39 stripes on His body that you may be healed. Folks, now that we know this is the Word of God, what are we going to do with it? i tell you what we're going to do with it. Are you ready? We're going to believe it. And we're going to put our trust in it. Woo! Somebody shout glory! Come on, I want you to pray and worship. Come on, worship and pray.